Welcome to the Living Out Podcast. I'm your host, Darren Steele, where queer thought leadership meets personal growth and social justice. As a leadership coach, I help gay men use their difference to make a difference, to lead others in creating a more humane world. Now, today I'm doing an interview and it's part of my Living Out Leadership series. This would be the second time I'm doing an interview and I'm really excited and pleased and honored to welcome a a good friend and a colleague, Jeff Yovanone. He and I have been doing some work together for quite some time, and I guess I've known him for well over a year. Um, He is an activist, scholar, a writer, an educator, and a researcher from Buffalo, New York. He holds a PhD in American Studies and specializes in gender and LGBTQ studies. He's the creator of the blog Queer History for the People and a columnist on Think Queerly. Now, both of those can be found on Medium. He's a member of the Buffalo Niagara LGBTQ History Project and a founding member of the Body Liberated Buffalo, a volunteer-run activist and advocacy group that works for body liberation in Western New York. So he sounds like he's a little type A like myself. So Jeffrey, welcome to the Living Out Podcast. Hi, it's great to be here. Well, we've been talking about doing either an interview or a discussion like this for for quite some time, and I've got actually more in mind. But before we jump ahead to things like that, um, we're going to be talking about the ideal gay male body and, and deconstructing what that means, the the pros, if there are any, the cons, the challenges to how we feel about ourselves, how we represent ourselves especially in the online world like Instagram or Facebook or even just in, in culture or how we present our bodies at, at Pride and and how we feel as gay men when we see what other gay men do or we hear or read about how other gay men describe themselves and their bodies or their health and their fitness journey. So let's tell the audience a little about a little bit about who you are, but maybe let's start with your your personal background and your interest in this subject area. So it's um, both, I'm coming from an experiential place and an academic um, place. So someone who um, growing up and, you know, even until um, recently into my 20s and 30s has experienced has has noticed a lot of body stigma in gay male spaces and communities and uh, i think that was really the the impetus for wanting to understand what's going on with these issues on uh, a deeper level um, a more historical level and, and understanding what's going on beyond my direct personal experience with the intention of how can we create change for the better. Great. Um, that gives us a, a nice framing, I think, to if we can go back a little bit more in the sense of 
the, the training that you have as, mm-hmm. as a PhD and in your LGBTQ studies, was there a point where your personal experience and your studies sort of, you know, bumped up against each other and you decided, wow, okay, this is something I need to tackle. It was really, um, well, I'll say that, um, for a while, I think even though, uh, intellectually I had the ability to analyze and look at these things, I wasn't really ready to, um, face that until I I was, um, I was older and it was really with, um, Donald Trump's election and then the Me Too movement that I started thinking about these issues more deeply because a lot of what I was seeing um, with the discussion surrounding Me Too and sexual violence and sexual misconduct and um, how harmful aspects of masculinity in our culture are that... um, masculinity and more specifically toxic masculinity was being talked about from a completely heterosexual lens um, or with the assumption that the men that we were talking about were um, heterosexual men who were victimizing women. Um, And I was like, wait a minute, Uh, because from understanding and studying and teaching scholarship on masculinity. Um, one of the things that scholars argue is that there's not one universal masculinity, there's multiple masculinities. So, uh, it stands to reason that therefore there's multiple, uh, forms of toxic or, uh, personally and socially detrimental masculinities. Um, so I started then thinking about that in a specifically gay male, context. And it was really me too that that started helping me kind of think about and articulate um, a lot of the socially regressive things I was witnessing or experiencing um, in terms of gay male communities and thinking about how that um, harms not only gay or queer men um, ourselves, but how that also contributes to our larger culture of uh, patriarchy, sexism, um, sexual violence. So you mentioned something about being socially regressive, and I just want to pull on that term just for perhaps the audience that might be wondering what that means. And certainly it's a a larger term, but let's just frame this within this uh, conversation we're having here today. Sure. So um, aspects of masculinity that are creating um, social harm or negatively impacting society. So we're talking about things like aggression, um, violence, domination, aspects of masculinity that are creating harm to men and others and um, denying essentially everyone access to our full humanity. Um, So what I'm saying here is not that masculinity and men are inherently bad, 
But masculinity as a cultural practice, as something that men are taught to be and do, there's aspects of that teaching that create social harm when they are enacted. The way you phrased it, masculinity as a cultural practice is really important because that that takes us into this idea of what is considered acceptable within the status quo that different cultures are going to dictate or influence the way in which men act. So we can certainly have a, a more general kind of masculinity within North America that will be different in parts of Canada, different in parts of the U.S., and different in south of the border, in Mexico. And then you're going to have very different types of masculinity in in cultures in Europe, in, in cultures elsewhere that maybe have different social toll influences like religion or things like that. Perhaps some thoughts on that before we move forward. Well, that's significant to point out because it shows us that masculinity as it's currently defined or as we currently see it is not something that is natural or inherent to men it's essentially a set of scripts that men depending on their particular cultural context are handed at birth and are expected to enact or perform um, in order to be considered quote-unquote real men But because it's a set of cultural scripts and expectations that um, is not emerging out of nowhere, is emerging out of a specific context, it means those norms and those scripts can be changed um, and ideally changed for the better, changed in a progressive direction. That perfect. That leads into sort of one of the questions I had prepared for myself, uh, which is why would somebody want to understand these ideas? And my take on this is is really the 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 meat of this discussion is that these scripts can be changed. They're not static. What would you add to that? And that they harm us personally, and they harm us on a broader social level. Um, and they harm people of all genders. So if we have definitions, ideas, visions of gender that are more liberating, that means that everyone can have a more livable life because we can act and be in a way that's truly authentic to us without that being policed. We see so many people trying to police gender, and that's actually something we're going to get into in in one of your articles. And I maybe want to transition now to um, explain a little bit about what we're going to be talking about Under the heading of deconstructing the gay male um, body image. So you've written over the last um, almost a year, yeah, uh, three articles that sort of built upon each other. One is we need to talk about toxic gay masculinity and then 
icons, objectification, and LGBTQ activism? And then finally, why is there not why is there no gay men's body liberation movement that appeared on Think Queerly? Now, in the show notes, I will have links to all these articles so that people listening can read them. But maybe let's talk about toxic gay masculinity. Mm-hmm. Perhaps start with framing You've done it a little bit already, but let's like jump into this and say, okay, here's what masculinity is. Here's when it becomes toxic. Right. And so I, I, I should also say that um, the direct inspiration for that, that piece was um, looking at how the Me Too movement was being discussed in the mainstream media and that there was this um, heterosexual um, assumption in, in terms of the way that masculinity or toxic masculinity um, was being framed. Um, and then me thinking about, okay, but we're also seeing aspects of this um, among gay men and that that's not being talked about or that's not part of um, the conversation. So I started with the term toxic masculinity as it's traditionally defined. Um, And so the term was coined by Terry A. Cuppers, who is a psychiatrist, and he was working with men in um, prison settings. And he found that there was aspects of the way that these men were defining um, masculinity or seeing themselves as men that were actually harmful to them. Um, In particular, they weren't seeking out mental health services that were available to them and would actually greatly benefit them because they had this idea that um, seeking that kind of help or being emotional or being vulnerable was a form of weakness and therefore um, antithetical to how they were defining what it meant to be a man. So he comes up with, based on that work, this term um, toxic masculinity that's talking about um, aspects of the way that masculinity is defined um, that have the the phrase he uses is uh, socially regressive effects. So from that, I started thinking about what are aspects of the way that, I mean, for gay men, masculinity intersects with sexual orientation, with um, gender expression that have similar, similarly um, harmful effects within a specifically um, gay male context. So when we start thinking about how masculinity intersects with other identities or other ways of being in the world, and then how does that shift the way that we are conceptualizing um, what toxic masculinity is? And then from there, I came up with uh, a definition of what I see toxic gay masculinity as, uh, and it's really interesting because when I was writing that piece, I remember um, Googling the phrase uh, toxic gay masculinity or um, doing searches for, for that phrase um, on 
databases. So looking for that, I have access um, to through through my work. Um, so looking like had anyone written about this concept in scholarly journals, and surprisingly, um, no one had specifically used that phrase or come up with a, a definition of what um, toxic masculinity looked like specifically within a gay male context. So as far as I can tell, I'm actually the first person to to use that specific phrase and come up with a definition for it. Um, so essentially, I would define toxic gay masculinity or um, I see it as aspects of gay male culture that have personal and or create personal and social harm um, in the form of um, policing surrounding body image, um, racism, transphobia, um, ableism that also result in the subjugation of gay men who fall outside of um, what the ideal gay man is within gay male culture. Um, And I refer to that ideal gay male figure as the normate gay. And I wonder if sort of the the me too aspect the the toxic masculinity bypassed um uh, this the involvement of gay male culture because we've been dealing with straight acting as an issue which you address in one of the articles later on but this straight acting is really focusing more singular on the masculine and the feminine energies or characteristics right Right, that there's this um, imperative to be uh, within gay male culture to be conventionally masculine because there's a lot of shame and stigma associated with femininity. Well, I wonder if it would be useful to talk a little bit about, um, you mentioned the movie Love, Simon, and I, I have yet to see it, but how does this how does this speak to this idea of what you've discussed? How it, it, are there, does toxic gay masculinity or uh, issues around it of being a normate gay show up in this movie, which was really loved by a lot of people? but I think more criticized by, let's just say, queer theorists. Yeah, or I would say like people who are um, coming from a more kind of radical um, queer social justice standpoint. Um, Simon is very much the normate gay. Um, He is white, um, thin, toned without being too muscular, um, not too masculine, not too feminine, um, not too, uh, flamboyant, not too queeny. Um, so he's a very palatable gay figure, um, which I think is why a film like this could even be made or, um, have such broad appeal 
Um, and interestingly, in the film, the film creates this character, Ethan, um, who's this queer black femme character who's kind of like the foil to Simon. Um, and that character is not in the book um, by Becky Al- Albertelli. Um, so it's interesting that that was specifically created for the film version, um, which I think you know, uh, reached a larger audience. Um, so it's like Ethan is telling the viewer, this is the kind of gay person that you don't want to be versus Simon is the good gay guy that we can accept. Um, And the film further doesn't go into some of the particular struggles that Ethan probably faces as a gay man of color, as someone who's more femme presenting. Um, So therefore his character ends up essentially being um, dehumanized and existing only to kind of prove or illustrate Simon's normate gay status. Um, And he's, he's not, um, Ethan is not um, complexly humanized. Um, He exists essentially to tell the viewer um, what a good gay person is. So essentially what the film version of Love, Simon is conveying is that uh, it's okay to be gay and we can accept that as long as you are gay in a certain way. It sounds like it's almost like creating these binaries within binaries. It's like, here's your foil. Like, well, here's the more effeminate gay, not our preference. We'll, We'll be so nice to include them. But then here's really the model. Here's how you need to present. And then you'll get all the love you want and adulation and, and, and people will realize that they feel sorry for you. Therefore they'll accept you. Yeah. And it's also, you know, incredibly, um, white centered narrative, uh, because Darren's, um, not Darren, <laughs> Simon's love interest, um, Bram is also, a person of color, but neither the book or the film really go into how sexual orientation and race and gender expression intersect to create a different experience for, for people. Um, It's completely centered on Simon's struggle and it makes that struggle, um, seem like a universal struggle when in fact um it it isn't he's coming from a very um privileged position in in a lot of ways again having not seen the film uh before i go to the ne- next question that sort of built upon this but this is this is the challenge with media and how we are represented by others and in in hollywood not knowing what the reason is for producing a particular product or who's directing it and what, what is added or taken away from the original given how it was delivered in, in, 
and I don't want to go too deeply into this because it'll take us into a whole other area of discussion, but is how it was delivered in any way a positive step forward, or is it somewhere in this neutral zone of, gosh, we need to get past this? I think it's positive in the sense that um, it, it opens a door to having you know this type of mainstream film that has a gay lead but that we can't just stop there um and we need to look at you know what is the the film doing well what are some of the issues in terms of representation and um then using that to inform um whoever makes the next movie um, right, that's going to feature uh, a gay character as as the lead. So it's always about a a, a progression. We talked about, or you talked a little bit about, um, sort of what society would consider a preference for how to present uh, this gay man here in the movie Love Simon. In towards the end of this article, you do touch on the idea of preference and in relation to prejudice and that might be an interesting thing to clear up and I, I think it might come up in one of the other articles but that's something you'll see for example in a lot of online dating apps they'll say well i have a preference for white guys a loaded statement right um so what i would say about preference is that a preference is never just a preference it is always political. So I think what it would be more useful to think about, um, as opposed to a preference, is to replace the term preference with a politics of desirability. And what I, I mean by that is who and what we desire is not individual is not solely personal, is not neutral, but is shaped by the context in which we live, and therefore it has political implications, meaning that it is enacting and reinforcing larger systems of power um, and oppression. So we really have to question okay, I have this preference or I feel this way or I desire these aspects or characteristics, but not these other characteristics. Why is that? Um, where is that coming from? Um, and preference is not necessarily something that we can change at the drop of a hat, but it might start to change if we ask ourselves those questions and begin to interrogate um, why we desire or why we are attracted um, to what we do. Um, so I think a useful analogy here um, comes from Beverly Daniel Tatum, who's a, a social justice educator who does a lot of anti-racism work. 
And she describes racism as being like smog in the air. Um, In other words, even um, if you are someone who doesn't see yourself as racist, or even as someone who is actively working for racial justice, you live in a society um, that has racist ideals. So invariably, you're going to absorb some of those prejudices and and some of those ideas. Um, So even if you position yourself as someone who is a social justice advocate in terms of preference or desirability, you're still going to absorb some of those ideas and they're going to shape what your preferences are. Um, So you just can't, you know, simply um, choose to opt out of the messaging that we get. So you can't force yourself to be attracted to someone but you can take a deep look at the societal influences on what your preferences are and um, recognize that, again, they're not mere preferences. They're shaped by a politics of desirability. And when we do that, the way that we relate to others might begin to shift. What we see in the media, how things are represented, movies like Love, Simon, uh, anyone that uses a dating app, um, not even if it's just the words uh, that are there in the profile or thirst traps we're going to get into next and sort of that um, objectification and icons. And Mm -hmm. that bombardment that we see in this world of the internet and the digital age. So which even if it's, even if we only isolate the visual that we're constantly bombarded with um, sometimes randomly images. And then there's the dominant social culture that's, you know, pushing out sort of a particular look, which reinforces what you're saying. So somebody will say, yeah, well, this is just what I like, but to take this deeper look to, Take a moment and and be empathetic and imagine feeling how somebody feels on the other end when they're browsing through profiles and they see something like, you know, and pardon me for the trigger here, no fats, no femmes, no Asians, you know, um, which is probably the most common thing you'll see. And it surprises the hell out of me and annoys the fuck out of me that people still do that. If we don't take this deeper look on the humane on the humane level how do we relate to each other like would you say that if you came up to me in a bar or a coffee shop or something and said hi i just want to say hello to you and you're like you're fat and you're it might happen <laughs> but the likelihood of it happening is so much if not infinitesimally smaller than the ease of somebody just going block or not into as a response on um, like a grinder or a scruff type profile. Yeah. And there's actually um, research that has shown that um, use of apps like the apps that you just mentioned actually changes our neurobiology and predisposes us to objectify each other, particularly uh, sexually objectify each other. And that has real world 
consequences uh, and like the the images or the representations that people uh, post online that you mentioned those images are not merely representing reality they're actually actively constructing reality and they're teaching us to think about the world and think about other people in a particular way they're creating what the norm is yeah this is i think a perfect place to to move into the article icons objectification and lgbtq activism because this talks even more before we get into um sort of men's body liberation so adam ripon and gus kenworthy you know major stars of the olympics in general and the the u.s olympics and both athletic young men demonstrating a certain kind of masculine energy maybe adam rapon a little bit more on the feminine side but athleticism plays into this and how they are presented within the olympics and in this iconographic uh, sort of way elevating them within society for this great achievement they have they have made but the interesting framing that you talk about in this article is the photo shoot that they did for out magazine mm-hmm. i was so pissed off by that um <laughs> Because and tell us a little bit about what what actually happened in this with this frustration you had. Yeah. So uh, in terms of the way that they were actually um, represented during the Olympic Games in Pyeongchang, um, Adam Rapon in particular, for him to use his platform as an Olympian to put Mike Pence, the vice president of the United States in the crosshairs and really call out his homophobia and his anti LGBTQ record. Um, And for Mike Pence to then deny that and for Adam Rapon to stick to his guns and say, no, if, if we look at the facts of your record, that is there, you cannot, um, change reality by just saying that you didn't do that, or you don't think that, think that way. Um, that's incredibly powerful, right? Someone who is going to an Olympic games as a representative of their country, using that as a platform to actively critique one of the country's so-called leaders. Um, and, and also for people to embrace him as a femme gay man, that is so significant and so important uh, in terms of him as a role model, as a change maker. Um, and for Gus Kenworthy, um, right after one of his races to kiss his partner and for that to be shown on national television, uh, they were using 
the privilege that was afforded to them as Olympic athletes to shift our perception, to raise some important questions. And then the games conclude. And then in terms of the media attention they get, in particular, this out magazine cover um, that's depicting them in this very sexually objectified way and essentially promoting their image or their brand or however we want to define it. Um, first and foremost, through their bodies and their physical appearance, not through their message or the social justice work they were doing. Um, I saw that as an example of a much bigger problem uh, within gay male culture and gay media, um, whereby there's this hyper focus on the body and physical appearance. And that's the primary definition of um, who has worth and therefore who gets represented and whose voice matters. And the actual message and the advocacy is second to physical appearance. And this leads right into the issue of capitalism because, yeah, does somebody standing up and fighting for our rights sell a lot of magazines? Maybe once, <laughs> because like Adam Rippon did, brilliantly challenged publicly Mike Pence, and that went viral. But then after that, it's done. What's going to sell multiple issues? Oh, he takes off his shirt and he poses in a sultry way with Kenneworthy. We can sell that. And what you talk about brilliantly in, in this article is how LGBTQ activism is then detrimentally harmed when we capitalize just on something that's really socially regressive, like what you said earlier – Nothing wrong with a beautiful body in my mind, but if that's all we're using to sell the thing, then we're distracting from what's more important, or we are diminishing other things down the chain of what's important because we got this great eye candy here that we can sell. Right. And what does it mean if you can only achieve the status of um, icon or role model or influencer or leader or however we want to frame it if you fit certain standards of appearance and again it goes back to that um what i call the normate gay figure right so you're you're white you're slim you're young you're you're toned you're appropriately masculine you're cisgender you're you're able-bodied um it has real implications if we're choosing our leadership or if we're only representing the perspectives of a select few, because more often than not, that select group is going to frame the issues and do the work in terms of um, what most relates to their experience and the way that they see the world. So if we're defining representation and leadership on the basis of physical appearance, that therefore limits our 
political efficacy as a community. In other words, our ability to create change within politics, within society, because we don't have multiple perspectives to draw from, and therefore we essentially have less tools in the toolbox to create change. Uh, precisely. And I want to actually read um, two quotes from this article. Uh, they're not back to back, but they just sort of summarize what you just said here. First one, if we restrict who can achieve this status to a select few, then we effectively limit possibilities for change because that work is then defined by a limited range of perspectives and experiences. When our role models come from such a limited pool, our activism accordingly becomes less inclusive and less effective. And then you go and talk a little bit about Queer Eye, which, you know, I think season three, I just binged watched when it came out literally over two days because I love the show. And of course, I see there's some challenges with it. Um, and I know you are a big fan of one of the cast, and I totally <laughs> agree with you when I was re rereading this about, um, oh God, am I going to say his rights now? Uh, is it Anthony Porowski? Um, he oh, yeah, is, he's another Normate gay. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, he's the most Normate gay. And I, when I was making notes here, I'm like, he's so boring. So, uh, I followed him for a little while on Instagram and I, I, I know this is going to sound like judgment and critical, but it, to me, all I saw was somebody who was doing sponsorship for other businesses and organizations. So he went right into the capitalism of he's handsome, he's white, he's got this great body, so he can sell anything. Mm -hmm. And as someone who went to cooking school for a year and in my former life, being a health and nutrition coach and, and teaching clients how to cook, how to cook in bulk and practicing that skill for 30 years. Um, he actually has the smallest role in Queer Eye because I don't think he, he brings a lot. And while some people are, are critical of certain aspects of the next one, I appreciate for many of the same reasons, Jonathan Van Ness. So tell us about Jonathan and issues of lookism and how that all plays into Queer Eye and our icons and our objectification and LGBTQ activism. I love Jonathan so much. Um, you know, and it's, it's interesting if one of the things that I've noticed is like, if you look at um, interviews with them together as a cast and they're being asked about political issues or social justice issues. Um, I feel like it's Anthony that has the most difficult time um, connecting with that or um, articulating that. And that doesn't, doesn't really surprise me because in a lot of ways, he's the one that's the most normative. Um, right. So there, there's things that he hasn't, um, had to think about, um, I think because he hasn't experienced them because he's right. The typical hot gay dude, um, who 
I think in, in, you know, some context could certainly quote unquote um, pass as being straight. Um, but I remember, so the, this reboot of the show comes out and my students were telling me that I needed to watch it. And I was like, okay, yeah, whatever. Um, because I didn't have particularly positive, um, feelings for the first version, um, of the show. So eventually I, I got around to watching it and I remember having this really viscerally negative reaction to Jonathan, um, and thinking like, you know, Oh my God, what is, what is this guy doing? Is he like playing a, a character of what he thinks, you know, a gay man should be. Um, it, it was just so over the top to me, um, that I had this like really visceral, um, shame reaction because I was like, you know, um, thinking about, you were having your own challenges with internalized homophobia. Yeah. Um, and thinking like, oh my God, he should tone that down because people are going to react in a certain way. And um, also seeing similarities between us and really struggling with to like those parts of myself. And then I continued to watch. And what I realized is he's not playing a character. He is being completely authentic and that that was bringing up uh things for me that i really needed to to think about um um and deal with and well overall uh, there's certainly problems with the show and things that we could critique but i think that the fact that someone like him exists on a Netflix series is present in the media um, is such a revelation. And I think that if, um, and this is impossible because he's younger than me, but if um, there was someone like JVN that existed in that capacity when I was younger, I think I really would have thought, differently about myself. Um, and the more that I think about it, it, it's not surprising to me that if we look at the fab five overall, it's the femme gay man who is the most political, the most social justice oriented, um, has that sort of critique um and is really i think savvy and effective in doing that kind of work because he's able to draw on both the masculine and the feminine um elements of humanity um you know and um recently i'm not sure if you've seen how the Fab Five went to Washington, D.C. to lobby for the Equality Act. Um, I didn't. 
he wore a fucking skirt to do that. That is so badass. And I was thinking about when gay activists, homophile activists start to picket and, and protest against the federal government in the early 1960s. And if you look at those photographs, the way that they would dress, the men were in suits and white shirts and ties, and the women had to wear um, dresses and, and pantyhose and, and high heels. The way that, that they needed to present themselves as being very gender normative at, at the time period in, in order for um, them to, to even be taken seriously. And he's showing up to DC in a skirt and is being photographed with politicians. And that is so significant and so brave. Right. And, and if we contrast that with someone like, uh, a Pete Buttigieg, um, who's a, a democratic presidential hopeful, um, who, you know, I, I would also kind of put into this normate gay category. Um, he's white, he's thin, he's conventionally masculine, he has a military background, he's Ivy League educated, um, he's very respectable and acceptable. And there's a lot of problems with his candidacy, I think, and the specifically the way he frames his identity as a gay man. Um, but I think that because of the fact that he is an out gay candidate, we've really seen um, gay men in particular really embrace him. And I think we have to question um, if he was a femme flamboyant fat, for example, um, gay man, but had the same perspective, level of intelligence, um, background, ideas, would people be so quick to embrace him? Probably not. I mean, we, what, what I think we're seeing is, and there's so much tumult everywhere, but the platform Netflix, who ever is overall in charge of, of programming um, clearly has an agenda that's working in the favor of LGBTQ people. And while, you know, I, I don't think it's worth completely breaking down and, and, um, and, and criticizing something like queer eye because it still represents more diversity that we've seen in a long time. And Jonathan Van Ness has picked up, an opportunity in a sense that was given him. Um, and it's, you know, very much kudos to him for what he has gone and done. And, you know, who knows where we'll be in, in 10 or 20 years from now, but I want to sort of move us now into sort of the final section of, um, uh, this discussion and your last article touched on the personal aspect that pulled all of these issues of, of masculinity, toxic gay masculinity, 
um, issues of physical representation, and then moving into the intersection of diet culture. So you were dating a guy sometime who said to you, you're not fat, fat, but you are gay fat. Right. <laughs> and the uh, context surrounding that, that conversation was um, me trying to bring up to him that I often felt like I didn't fit into um, gay culture. And he was a person that was very extroverted, very um, social, had a lot of friends, liked to go out to the bar and I was kind of articulating, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't always feel like I was comfortable or I didn't always, um, felt like I fit into those sorts of spaces. And his explanation was that, um, that was because I wasn't, um, fat, fat in a conventional sense, like, um, mainstream society wouldn't, look at me and label me as a quote unquote fat person. And of course, right. Fat is, um, just a social construct that we often apply to disciplined bodies that are, um, too large or too different or too unruly or that fall outside of appearance standards. So I wasn't fat, fat in a conventional sense, but, um, I was fat within the context of gay male culture. And that's why I didn't fit in. So the solution to the problem was I, um, should just go on a diet and go to the gym. Yeah. It just reminded me, I, I sent you a, uh, a little video on Instagram of some, uh, I guess, personal trainer or fitness organization doing these, you know, workouts for pride. And I, I just the other day, I wish I had sent it to you as well. Some meme of, you know, a handsome guy, but typical white and, you know, stomach was flat, but not a six pack, but he's clearly what we would call in shape. And the meme said something like, um, you know, you're sexy as a straight man, but in the gay community, you're fat because he didn't have a, a ripped six pack. And so some of these challenges and definitions, um, or I should back up and say these, these challenges that we face with our integration, our feeling accepted or others accepting us, what you talk about in, in this article, why is there no gay men's body liberation movement is the intersection of diet culture and gay men's body issue. And I haven't heard it framed in that way before. So tell us more about how this came to be and, and why these two things overlap and why maybe we haven't been aware of them. I would actually go so far as to say that um, when we're talking about mainstream gay male culture, that Gay male culture and diet culture don't just overlap or intersect, but they are, in fact, one in the same. And I think we need to go that far and point that out because there's real issues and problems here. And so in order to, to fix the problem and to move forward, we actually under, need to understand the nature of what it is that we're we're talking about 
Um, and of course, this also intersects with things like um, toxic gay masculinity and the ideal body type. So diet culture is a system of beliefs within Western culture that says that being thin is connected to worth, to moral superiority. It also um, elevates certain ways of eating or fitness practices um, over others. And therefore, it oppresses people who fall outside of um, the thin ideal or are not engaging in certain activities to discipline their bodies in order to uh, bring them into alignment with what the norm or the ideal is. And I think we see this happening within a specifically gay male context to the extent that publicly or socially demonstrating your participation in diet culture as a gay man um, is in fact what it means to be seen as a good or legitimate or desirable or worthy um, gay man. So in particular on social media or online or within gym culture, we actually see gay men um, bonding over diet culture. It is a way to essentially create gay male identity or community, right? Sharing your workout routine, um, selfies, your meal prep, talking about how much weight you squatted or um, whatever, demonstrating that, that you are disciplining your body to fit into the ideal in order to be desirable. Um, of course, the problem with that is if that's what the standards that we're using to define community and inclusion, then we're excluding and discounting and I think even dehumanizing um, a lot of people that don't fit into those standards. Um, and the idea is that is often that you know anyone can achieve that ideal if only you work hard enough, if only you eat the right food, if only you have um, the right, exercise routine, um, right? And so gay men don't talk about dieting. We call it, you know, fitness journey or um, fitness inspiration or personal growth. But those words are just masculine terms for um, what a diet actually is because we associate um, dieting and weight loss with women and femininity, um, in our culture. Uh, and so therefore there's this imperative to be masculine in order to be normal, in order to be desirable. So the privilege that's conferred by upon gay men, by conforming to, um, masculine ideals. And of course, part of that 
is being muscular, being toned, having the appropriately masculine body that is associated with being desirable and that um, affords people a lot of social and sexual capital and privilege um, because of all the benefits that that come from that. Um, it's very difficult to recognize the way that diet culture is operating within gay male culture and the fact that it is so entrenched because to actually analyze that and admit that that's what's going on would require people to give up a lot of um, the privilege that's associated with um, masculinity and embodying the aesthetic ideal, um, which is completely tied up in um, notions of conventional or appropriate masculinity. Coming right back to this narrative, sort of giving a bit of a, a background as I see it and uh, have read about it and I've lived through parts of it and you talk a little bit about it in the article, there... You know, for for gay men in the '60s and the '70s, um, while there wasn't the freedoms and the liberation that there is today, the most sort of singular way of identifying was that you had sex with the same sex, and sex and sexuality became sort of the way of identifying and what a lot of us have been maybe struggling with in the last decade is that that's not all that we are. And we've got issues of, you know, the differences between how we understand sexuality and gender now. But I think back to uh, histories that I read or even uh, novelists from that time, like Andrew Hollerhan, who wrote Dance Dance in a collection of short stories uh, in September, The Light Changes. And he has this view into the 70s, you know, uh, pre-HIV crisis, and then during that time as well, you know, bathhouse culture, the representation of the perfect male body, um, pre-HIV, uh, pre-AIDS, there was sort of this Marlboro man image like that, that the iconographic sort of Western masculine plaid shirt, like, you know, buttoned on down to just about above the navel, wearing a cowboy hat, very scruffy, either a beard or several days scruff. So the epitome of what would really be considered masculine, but then the gay identification would be the tight 501 Levi's bulging out, maybe one button undone, and maybe even using colored hankies to indicate the kind of like sexual interest. So there was this sexualization that is dependent on preference, attraction, physical imagery. And while there may not have been the sharing of information about diet and how to diet, there was definitely a gym culture and Gyms are discussed in a lot of these stories of that was one of the places in New York City and in San Francisco where gay men were able to meet. And so you're working out your body, you're taking care of your body, but then you're in this sexualized environment and you can have sex in the sauna or you can pick up and you can go home. And that's almost in a certain way a a way of creating that has supported to this place where we've come now. And as you've said, um, 
the gay mainstream and diet culture are pretty much one and the same. Um, so I, I think what you articulated that's that's really significant is that what the ideal body image is is not natural or incidental, but it's the product of a combination of historical and cultural factors. And then it's also worth pointing out that there have always been gay people um, or gay men in this case that have articulated what it means to be gay or to be queer um, as something that is more than just a sexual orientation or who we're attracted to, but that it's a social difference. And I think that that we're really seeing this with um, younger generations of LGBTQ people um, who are not just seeking acceptance for um, who they're attracted to or their gender identity, but want to dismantle and and challenge and refashion um, cultural norms surrounding gender and and sexuality um you know and, and and going back to the the ideal body type for um for gay men i think part of what we see historically is a gay liberation movement in the 1970s overlapping with a um larger cultural sexual revolution that is causing things to be defined or, or gay male identity to, to be defined very much in terms of um, masculinity and sexuality and desirability. And then I think when we get into the 1980s, the HIV AIDS epidemic has a huge impact on the way that we think about the gay male body specifically, but also Um, bodies in general, because we start to see the aesthetic shift from the Marlboro Man Castro clone that that you mentioned to essentially this hyper-perfect ideal of um, the, the toned, white, slim, hairless, healthy looking gay man as a way to physically project or mitigate the the shame that is associated with the epidemic because it's essentially being defined as a gay disease, a, a gay illness, um, and that gay men are being culturally seen as um, inherently diseased inherently other so the the body image emerges as a way to combat that Um, but i think that that change in the ideal and the aesthetic is still with us that we're still using the body as a way to deal with the fact that despite recent progress 
it's still not completely accepted or um, to be gay or to be queer is to still be seen as being other. And here's another place where gay male culture and diet culture are intersecting. Um, Dieting is very much about morality and being seen as a socially worthy person. Um, The roots of diet culture, if we trace it all the way back to the 19th century, um, are this idea uh, of if you can control your appetite, your food intake, the type of food that you're eating, that socially signals that you are a morally virtuous person. We totally see that playing out within gay male culture. Um, To be gay, in particular, gay sex, is still seen as stigmatized, as deviant, as excessive. And then showing that you can discipline your your body, um, that you can diet, that you can exercise in order to achieve the ideal um, is a way of showing that you have control and discipline and therefore morality in the face of a society that's trying to to position you um, as being other. And there's such an irony I want to say an ironic paradox. I don't know if I can say that. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking there's human desire, there's behavior, there's the capitalism and how we can market our, uh, our our bodies. There's this confluence of the ideas of virtue and diet culture that you're talking about and morality. And then there's the fact that, you know, a lot of gay men still have shame issues around sex and having sex with gay men and having been in the closet and what have you. So this narrative of the perfect body, the perfect meal, showing your best self in a selfie, sharing your diet routine or your super squat that you just did, or the fact that you're here shirtless uh, doing um, a CrossFit routine, that you're the picture of the health. Except when you go out on Friday night and you take an ecstasy and then you decide to go home and have bareback sex. That to me is, it's, it's not funny. It's, it's a funny irony in that this is base human behavior. How on one level we want to act to be completely free and how we are then manipulated and controlled on a very unconscious level by social constructs. Right. And, and you might think that engaging in certain types of sex is um, undisciplined or right, unacceptable or um, internalizing uh, social messaging about like what is good sexuality and, and what is, is bad sexuality. And then I think because of feeling... Um, shame or guilt over that um, showing in other aspects of life that you can be a a good um, disciplined controlled person Um, and I I think part of this as well is like for example I was 
born in 1982, and 1982 is the year that the Centers for Disease Control comes up with the AIDS acronym, and then it's in 1983 when the HIV virus is discovered. Um, so for you know people of my generation and later, um, we have only grown up with this hyper-perfect body image, that there isn't a lot of alternatives, at least not in the mainstream, and we might not even realize or be able to unpack the historical factors of where this body image is coming from and what it means and how it functions as a form of control. Um, and I also think about how the the feminist writer Naomi Wolf in um, her book, The Beauty Myth, which is a classic analysis of um, diet culture and appearance standards from the 1990s, she refers to, to dieting as political, as a political sedative. Um, so essentially what she's pointing out is if there's all of this focus placed on minority groups to conform to certain appearance standards in order to be considered normal, acceptable, worthy, then you are spending all of that time disciplining yourself and also probably disciplining and policing other people who don't conform to what you think the ideal is, as opposed to actually um, joining together with people who could be your allies and co-conspirators to work for uh, broad systemic change. That is, I think, the perfect segue for us to bring this all together and maybe two final questions for you. Maybe you've said it already, but is there one piece of advice you could impart on my listeners with respect to this topic and what would it be? Instead of trying to conform to some external ideal, it's always better to be your authentic self, even though you might not fit in, than to imitate someone or something that you're not. Because when we dim who we are to make other people comfortable, or when we attempt to minimize what makes us different, we can't do our best work, we can't show up as our best selves, and we can't create the changes that we most want to see. Um, our power actually comes from our differences. And what we might think is our greatest weakness or what might bring us the most shame about ourselves is actually our greatest strength. Wonderful. And that's 
what I have been saying for, I guess, the last few weeks now. Use your difference to make a difference. And I like how you framed it. I'm nodding my head in the background here the whole time that sometimes it seems like a weakness and it's not. That's been framed for us to understand perhaps out of out of shame or something we learned or in that that part that feels like a weakness is actually the greatest signal that that's the part of us that that truly isn't what the the culture wants us to present as but if we want to see this change we need to present more on that so last uh, question, Jeff, what is it that you're working on right now that really speaks to this topic we've talked about at length today? So as you mentioned, um, I have a biweekly column on um, Think Queerly that's called Talk Queerly, where I write about and discuss um, LGBTQ culture and politics. Um, so this is a, a space where I've been um, thinking about a lot of these issues and I'll continue to write columns on these topics as my thinking evolves or uh, things come up um, in the media. And my hope um, is that I'm eventually going to collect some of those columns into um, an essay collection um, of some sort. And I think that, that that's really significant um, because, you know, in, in us talking about why is there no gay men's body liberation movement to the extent that um, one exists um, led by women within contemporary feminist work, um, there are so many women who are leading the charge on this issue, who are writers, activists, role models um, that we can look to, but not a lot of gay or queer men. Um, and yes, we can look to those women, but then we're also always doing this kind of trans translational work of thinking about, okay, well, how does that relate or not, not relate to, um, a gay male perspective or, um, experience. So I think there's a lack of leadership in that area. And so I, I feel like I, I need to impart through my, my writing, um, step up and provide that sort of leadership and at least a framework for thinking about the intersection of gay culture and diet culture and a way that we can uh, begin to analyze and dismantle that. Um, and I also recently founded with some friends an organization called um, Body Liberated Buffalo. Um, so we are a volunteer advocacy support activist um, organization. And our intention is that we're eventually going to go out and educate um, in the community 
about body liberation issues, there's not as many resources um, or supportive professionals in the Western New York area, um, specifically as there, there might be in other areas of the country. That is a whole lot going on. <laughs> and that's why I said right at the beginning that uh, you will be back for a number of other ideas that I have because you you have a lot of thoughts and you are most definitely a change maker within the LGBTQ realm. And I want to thank you for your time because this has been a really informative podcast and that I said, you know, we've been working together. I've read all of these articles a, a couple of times. Um, I learned a lot more and it'll be interesting reviewing the podcast for certain snippets that you said. And uh, thank you once again for being here. Thank you. And uh, I had a lot of fun and um, you know, I think um, what, I'll, what I'll say as a concluding thought is um, part of Another uh, project that I'm working on has involved me um, interviewing um, older gay men, um, and that has been so liberating um, because part of the body ideal and the appearance standard and who gets represented is always people who are young and we really do um a disservice when we discount the perspectives um of our elders so i want to thank you and the work that you're doing and the leadership that you're taking because you have a lot of wisdom and experience that i don't have and you've greatly impacted the way that i see myself and the way that i'm approaching these issues in my work Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. I was going to say, are you calling me old? It's a compliment. <laughs> yeah, I know. I took it as such. Very true. And I, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm really looking forward to um, reading and hearing some of these interviews once you, uh, you have them in a more public, accessible format. So thank you again. Thanks. Thanks.